Open finance could define the future of financial services, and that's why 11FS and Plaid have joined forces to create a report to explore this in much greater depth. In it, we scrutinize the lessons learned from open banking, outline the key policy considerations for its implementation, and consider its impact on financial services providers and for the potential benefit of the consumer. If you want to download the free report, you can head over to bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. That's bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. Hey guys, my name is David Breer and welcome to episode 69 of InsureTech Insider. I'm hosting in Sarah's place today because, well, I mean, She's sort of a bit of a busy bee this weekend, so uh, I'm stepping in. Uh, what we're going to be doing is continuing the recordings that we're doing remotely, which means that actually we're all doing this not in the same place, which is all a bit weird. Um, but actually, for anybody who's listening to this who has great suggestions for new guests or for anybody that you'd like to listen to on this show, uh, do get in touch with us by sending us an email at podcasts at 11fs.com if you know somebody who we should be having on here. All right. In today's show, we will be discussing the most interesting news that is happening in the insurtech and insurance sphere from around the globe. And much of that there is. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Nigel Walsh. How's it going, Nigel? I am enjoying the sunshine. Long may it last. I mean, other than the fact that I think we're all about to burst into flames doing this indoors right now, if we could somehow do um, insurtech insider in the sun like next, I think that would be... I think we'll pitch that idea to Tobias link, later on. Link sure. to a nice climate story as well could be quite good, couldn't it? I mean, at least that would be a good excuse, wouldn't it, to there do it? But uh, anyway, all right. Uh, we're, as always, we're, we're joined by uh, some amazing guests. So first up, we have uh, Sahas Kata. Is that the? Uh, did I nail that pronunciation, or uh, is that off off guard? It's Sahas. You got very close. Sahas Kata. Okay, I was pretty close. Who is the CEO of Smart Car? How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on today. No problem. And for anybody who doesn't know, can you just give us a bit of a background on SmartCar? Sure. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of SmartCar. We're a company based in Mountain View, California. Uh, SmartCar is the world's leading API platform for cars. And really in the context of insurance, um, we've been making it real easy for auto insurance companies to integrate with cars without having to have customers plug in expensive devices into their car to provide information back to their insurance carrier. And uh, uh, we've been helping both emerging insurtech companies who are bringing pay-by-the-miles products to market faster, as well as incumbents who are trying to address subject matters like underreported mileage and misrepresented garaging. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think what we're excited about is making mobility more equitable for everyone. Fantastic. I mean, we'll definitely be coming back to that at some point in the show. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, secondly, we have David George, who is the CEO over at Bicmo. How's it going, David? Uh, it's going well, thanks. Um, enjoying the sun, same as Nigel. Um, pretty busy, as you've probably seen, I think, on your roads outside your house. Uh, cycling's going and undergoing something of a boom in the, in the lockdown, which I feel very uh, fortunate for. Well, and, and as a foreshadowing, tell us a little bit about, more about the company for, for anybody who doesn't know. Yeah, sure. So uh, Bitmo is a cycle insurance specialist. So we're a certified Beat Corp and built by Bike Geeks. Uh, we operate in the UK, Ireland, um, uh, Germany and Austria company. And our mission is to protect the world's riders. So we, uh, we, build, uh, we build a technology our customers interact with, including the quote by midterm adjustment and claims applications. Alongside our direct channels, the standard sort of, um, sort of brand ones, we work with some of the biggest and best brands in the cycling world from British Cycling, um, Cycle Scheme, Brompton and Deliveroo. Very, very good. As you say, uh, a definite uh, a definite boom in this time, right? So it's uh, will be interesting to see your views as we go through the show. Uh, last but by no means least, uh, we're joined by Nikki Daniels. So Nikki is a board advisor for Honcho Markets and founder and director at Easy Insurance Solutions. How's it going, Nikki? It's going well. Hot like everybody else, but uh, can't grumble. Where in the world are you? Down in sunny Hampshire, and it certainly is today. It is. It really is. Like, uh, you know, if you, if you really want a group of people to stay inside, blazing sunshine is not the way to make that happen, Correct. unfortunately. So uh, <laughs> lockdown is definitely going to be uh, going to be a lot more difficult in this period of time. But uh, anyway, let's get on with what's been happening this week and in, uh, in the news. 
Uh, first up, we have a, a story over on Business Insider. And I mean, this is probably the, the biggest um, thing that's uh, happened in this space for, for a little while. This is Lemonade Goes Public. So the $2 billion valued uh, by, by SoftBank-backed insurance startup Lemonade has filed to go public. And, and I mean, this is a, a pretty interesting one that has sort of different layers to it because filing for an IPO in itself is, is not, uh, I mean, I guess in this climate, particularly, uh, you know, filing is is really dramatically uh, reduced but that wasn't really what the story was about so much but so the the insurance company backed by softbank filed for documents on monday 8th of june for initial public offering uh like many other softbank backed companies uh that head to public markets lemonade is not currently making money um, as we should sort of say, I mean, startup mechanism, startup setup. Lemonade reported a net loss of 108.5 million in 2019, and that more than doubles it loss, its losses in, in 2018. So the company's revenue, meanwhile, increased threefold in the same span from 21.2 million to 63.8 million. So despite these pretty heavy losses, Lemonade says its margins are improving and it sets its sights on the global insurance industry, which the company is estimated to be worth five trillion annually. I mean, Nigel, what do you think on this? Is this is this just the way in which startups scale? You know, actually they they have been investing very heavily in growth and acceleration. But do you think this is that? Or do you think this is somebody IPOing maybe slightly before they're ready? Uh, that is such a good question. And I think for anyone in the insure tech or even fintech space has been looking at Lemonade for so many different reasons. I mean, we've had Daniel on the show before. I'll put it out there. I'm a massive fan of what they've done. They seem to have captured the market, the mines, the, sh- um, the bright pink. Everywhere they go, I think they have a lovely, lovely story to tell. And they're building a brand new business from scratch with that the every incumbent I talk to would be envious of their technical beauty in terms of there's no debt, there's no legacy, the mindset's there. Uh, I, I love it. I'm a massive fan of it. But the numbers themselves are a different conversation, aren't they? I think when you when you look at it, and there's been a whole load of speculation. In fact, they're, they're not out of the press daily right now, given the IPO. Um, some of the stuff they're doing around expansion into other countries, whether it's Germany or Netherlands, I think now as well, David, you'll see on the cycling side. Um, I, I, we'll find out in a few days' time, right, when they come to market at, at the right price. But I think, I think for now, this has been... If you were going to build a business from scratch, it would probably look very much like this in my yeah. mind. I mean, it, it highlights, doesn't it, that um, it takes a lot of money to disrupt an industry, doesn't it? Like, you know, who'd have thought? Um, but actually, in terms of, uh, again, if you look at the, the point that they are in the cycle, then, you know, the fact that, yes, costs are going up, but the revenue is going up. And actually, ultimately, VCs have been backing these things with a view of, uh, a, you know, a, a window of, of where that return will come. So, uh, and like you say, actually, from a branding perspective, from a technology perspective, from a operational capability, there's probably no insurance company out there that wouldn't, you know, kill for, for, for that capability. So, like you say, the time will tell when the valuation comes, won't it? And that's that's going to be very soon. But, uh, Nikki, what, what do you think on this one? Do you think this is... Uh, this is the insure tech industry sort of growing up a little bit. You know, IPOs are, are big boys stuff, aren't they? So uh... they, they certainly are, David. And and I'm with Nigel. If you were going to develop tech and you were going to develop process, um, you couldn't do better. You know, you start from ground and you distribution, client acquisition. Those are the things that I think we need a bit more time to tell. I mean, those are big numbers. Um, and, you know, if it was simply about the technology, nailed it but actually now the real hard work starts if that makes sense where you're going to try and compete against big boys who have been embedded in in those plays for well in some cases hundreds of years but certainly for decades yeah i agree and it's it's an interesting one isn't it i mean the uh Bizarrely, uh, like I say, if, if they've got the culture part right and the technology part right, if you if you have the really hard bits right, the secret source to scaling at that point it's money, isn't it? So actually, if they if they can gain you know access to funds to allow them to scale in the way that they need to, then um, it really does uh, it really does change the change the game really because they come become such a different level of competitor, don't they? What what do you think, David? How do you see this one playing out? Uh, for me, it's a, it's a curious one. I, I do wonder where the timing has come from, whether it was them that, that wanted to... T- I mean, the narrative has been they're taking the same path that 
you know, the Amazons, the Microsoft, when they're kind of young going into it early and it makes it easier to, to, to raise funds going forward. But the, obviously, we, we're coming off the back of the car crash of, of the WeWork sort of IPO. Uh, another SoftBank, SoftBank company. Now, I kind of wonder where, where, where that kind of pressure has come from. I, I, first off, I, must, I, I love what Lemonade are doing. I think it's a great thing for the industry, what they're doing, kind of shaking it up. The narrative, um, as well as the technology, it's just the way in which the, I think the, the, the narrative with customers and uh, the interactions is fantastic. So I think it's a brilliant thing for the, for the sector. I guess the one the one risk for it is when you go public, you are a public company, and if for any reason that doesn't go quite where it should do, and and the kind of press piles, and then it, that kind of removes a lot of the sheen that they've built up over the over years that they've been operating. I think it's going to be a really really interesting one to see. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. It's it's funny you say that. Uh... I was talking to someone else online earlier and I said, maybe these insurance companies should be private so they can just get on with some long-term objectives, not be driven by a stock market valuation or quarterly incentives or otherwise. I guess, Sahas, you've got a a different view, though, given that it's US-based and then state-by-state and renters. I mean, the the thing for me, if you look at some of the numbers from the loss ratio of 179 or roughly 179 down to 79, it's been improving but this this product is sixty bucks a year. That is not a lot of money to go play with per customer, right? Even if they've got what seven hundred thousand or eight hundred thousand customers, that's not a lot of money still. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, you know, um, they're still a five year old company. It's pretty crazy to realize that they've moved really fast, and they are a real insurance company. I think the others in the space who've IPO'd in the past, like SelectQuote, EverQuote, etc are more of uh, uh, marketing channels than actual insurance products. So I think uh, we often associate Lemonade with investors like SoftBank that have been quite prolific in the news as a result of a few troubling IPOs and uh, uh, issues with companies like WeWork. But I think if you look past that, you'll also see some really incredible investors like Sequoia that are highly regarded as one of the most are the best VC firm in the world in a lot of ways on their cap table as well. Another point I also want to make is I am actually happen to be a customer. I use Lemonade for my apartment um, here in Mountain View, California. And the thing that was quite incredible about the experience, I'm not sure if anyone here has gone through it themselves, is that it actually took me no more than maybe three or four minutes to go through the entire end-to-end process. And just as a reference point, you know, it probably takes me longer than that just to find the phone number of my agent with any other provider. And that's really the level of difference that I personally see. So when it comes down to acquiring customers, you know, it's not just the tech, but they have that part nailed down pretty well, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. I was going to say, David, I think on this one, this is where I get stuck. And I've written a lot about this as a techie uh, individual. You've probably seen the same with banking. So I'd love your view here is, are they better off? removing the customer acquisition cost and the money they spend on the brand they've built and be the new tech provider of choice for every other carrier out there where you've already got a market that's probably got, you know, 100 plus startups in this space that do tech entry. You've got incumbents like uh, Duck Creek and Guidewire that have got a fantastic market share at scale. Um, Why don't you just make your tech available to everyone else that some of the banking vendors have done as well, David, to go and launch new banks? Yeah, I mean, definitely we've seen this, you know, the whole sort of bank as a service, bank as a platform stuff. I mean, Fedor sort of attempted that to a certain degree, right? And, uh, you know, definitely there's elements of players like Starling who are trying to do that as well. Um, You know, being a B2C business and being a B2B business are are really different things. And uh, I think the the opportunities for players, I mean, Amazon is is a good example of, of getting that really right, right? AWS services do something so great for yourself that you can externalize it and, and monetize it in that way. Um, but almost that that has to come with the success that they breed for themselves. So, I mean, I, I'd say really six months from now, if the IPO goes in the way that they, they want it to, then they can fix the whole industry, not just the industry for themselves, as you say, Nigel, which arguably would be a, you know, a completely different um, model of revenue stream and a, a, you know, a very different picture right for the entirety of the industry. I think they're a strong bellwether or strong leading point person for the rest of the industry in so many ways. Dare I say, the industry, the insure tech community needs it to be successful for that reason, because I think everyone else will. It's almost if this goes wrong, everyone else might catch a cold or might catch a, 
uh, a negative reaction for it for a period of time. So I, I've been a fan. I wanted to be successful. Well, and not, and not, I agree, completely agree with that. And uh, not just the insure tech industry, but actually insurance as well, right? The, these guys have been the, the kind of the kick up the ass a little bit for some of the, the really big players to uh, pursue a, a different agenda when it comes to digital and operational cost and, and actually just in terms of how you treat consumers. So uh, uh, I know, uh, I mean, last time I was on the show, Daniel was on, it was when we were out in uh, New York and uh, yeah, we wish those guys well. We'll uh, see what happens in the, the next episode, I guess, right? That's uh, foreshadowing excitement. All right. Uh, next story that we have is over on insurance business magazine. So this is the post office brings back travel insurance with coronavirus cover. So one of the biggest names in the UK travel insurance industry has put its products back on sale. And that includes coronavirus cover. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see the detail of that. But the, the policy change will include cover for contracting coronavirus while overseas is standard across the single trip annual, multi-trip and backpacker insurance. So it would all also include emergency medical uh, costs if somebody falls ill, uh, including repatriation. So, uh, But it will only uh, come into effect if they travel where there is no restrictions in place. Um, and that's according to the FCO, so the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I mean, this is this is interesting. I mean, the whole world is very much pushing us to like keep calm and carry on and just go back on holiday. Everything's fine, guys. Like, um, but I mean, is this the the post office reacting to a consumer need, or or maybe um, encouraging travel a little bit too much, where um, you know travel shouldn't be happening right now? I know, obviously, for the guys who are in Europe, Spain has now said. They're opening. There's going to be no restrictions. You can travel in and out relatively straightforward. So I guess at that point you need insurance, right? I think I think it's tricky because I, you know, old-fashioned insurance. Effectively, if the Foreign and Commonwealth Office say no travel, that's it. You, if you travel against foreign offered device, your cover is void. What the post office have actually said, and they're not alone. There are others, Stayshore and others, AXA. Um, they are covering if you contract COVID whilst on holiday, there is no cover for cancellation, curtailment. So it's not full insurance cover. And I think that concerns me slightly because you go to market with buy an insurance from us, you've got COVID cover. And actually all you're covered for is getting COVID when you are overseas for your hospital bills and getting you home if necessary. That's not the same uh, as having cover against COVID. So I think, you know, it is on us in the insurance industry to make sure that the public actually understand what they're purchasing. And this is a classic example of that, in, in my opinion. Well, like you say, the, the marketing maybe doesn't necessarily live up to what people think when they think they're covered for COVID, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, Nigel, what do you think? Is this, um, is this the sort of market just um, you know reacting to a potential, as, as Nikki's saying, this is potentially marketing opportunity rather than the cover necessarily changing? No, I actually think this is genuine um, by all of the industries, as Nikki said. I mean, it's not just post office. I think all the players are coming back to work out what we now do in this segment. Um, I was chatting to a friend actually out on a bike ride this morning. I've got 35 kilometres in. You'll be pleased to know, David, before 7.30. So, uh, but we were chatting away about holidays, as you do. Don't, don't ring me, Nigel, whatever you do at that time, all right? I'm, we, uh... we started at 6, so I'll ring you next time. Don't worry. We... Um, but, but, but actually, we, we've both been sitting through the situation where we both cancel holidays or our flights were cancelled or whatever else. Nikki, to Nikki's point and, and to outline here, I've just double-checked it again. I checked it when we put the story in here. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office still says avoid all non-essential travel. So, I mean, if you look at rule number one, if you, if you crash out of rule number one, we're done. We're not going anywhere anyway. But before you check for sunglasses, sun cream and your beach ball, now you're going to check... Um, what's the healthcare system like in the country you're going to? Because if you were going to a, a Caribbean island or a, a somewhere that doesn't have the same level of quality that the NHS does, you might be thinking twice about going to a place that can't look after you should you get ill. And of course, COVID-19, whether it's travel insurance or business interruption or whatever we do, we are now, every one of us, because we've all leveled up to the COVID-19, will ask the question going, are we covered for COVID-19? So I don't think the industry had much of a choice other than to say very clearly, you are covered or you are not not covered. And I think moves by uh, post office saga got together this week with one of the cruise liners to bring people back to cruises. 
is almost necessary to get the economy moving again and give you the reassurance, which is what insurance is for, that should there be a risk, we'll mitigate against it for you. I think it's an interesting point from from Nikki though. Of do people really understand? I mean, I, there's always been a, a cover uh, what you think you're covered for and what you really are covered for gap uh, in either knowledge or understanding or explanation. And I mean, we we obviously saw this with um, you know SARS in the past or any other breakout that we've we've sort of seen. People um, uh, have you know bullet points in policies that uh, maybe don't cover people in quite the way that they they think they do um but like you say i think at this stage as much as um you know a nice break to spain would be lovely the uh, definitely the uh, fco are, are advising it against it just just for a little bit but uh, david what do you think well, i really think you kind of have to meet the perceived risk and i think the biggest thing that people traveling are going to be concerned about is repatriation and sort of medical sort of care when they, when they go overseas and it, it is going to happen you know i know the F, F, uh, fco isn't isn't saying anything now but it is going to happen the interesting thing for me is how if the demographic of the people traveling is going to change somewhat it's going to impact the low-cost airlines so whether prices will go up or there'll, there'll be less routes run that's happening throughout europe already but interesting the people that probably uh, are more would be have the money to travel are going to be uh, the older generation who are more susceptible to, to, to coronavirus as a risk and i think i think every travel insurer will have to include that if you're going to compete uh, in the travel market i, I think i can't see any way they they, they couldn't and actually, on, on that point, the FCA a while back came out and said people with pre-existing conditions, uh, cancer, diabetes, or things that would require um, different levels of medical care if abroad, were being penalised for high cost of travel insurance in the first place. Does this make it worse? I and mean, we've seen life insurers um, starting to add COVID questions to their question set to say, have you had a test? And if you haven't had a test, have you had symptoms or whatever else? So you can start to look at uh, look at those things. I'm, I'm equally intrigued to know what the US perspective is, because I think their view of the lockdown, uh, I think California have done, a, I think from memory, a, a, a sterling job, but there's parts of the US that, that haven't done so well in terms of lockdown. So I'd be keen to get a perspective out of the States as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, it's exciting to see you guys already in the place that you are offering insurance policies around this Whereas in the States here, half our, half of us are still trying to figure out and debate whether COVID is even real. So uh, we're, we're, we're real. still going through. <laughs> um, but no, I think uh, what's been exciting for me, I think, is uh, when I look at at least the Silicon Valley, um, one trend that I saw, which was uh, pretty interesting, um, it started probably as early as January with a lot of the venture capital firms who locked down their offices well before you know any of the official quarantines went into place. People thought they were a little crazy. They got uh, some funny news articles written about them. And then uh, another month or two later, again, before any county or state or anyone did anything, uh, a lot of the tech companies also went into quarantine very early on. And uh, then that followed by uh, some of the progressive uh, districts like uh, Santa Clara County and the state of California also imposing these rules. So out here, I think a lot of the decisions that are made are often done on a local or state level. So you see a lot of variance between each of the different states. And again, even reopening happens on a state-by-state basis. So we're seeing a lot of places now where states are reopening, then reclosing, and it's still really difficult um, to really understand uh, uh, why it's not done on a nationwide scale, in my perspective, at least. At a federal level rather than state-by-state. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it is a difficult one, isn't it? And I, I think, um, I mean, in many instances, what we're seeing uh, globally, I think with COVID is the the government's trying to balance uh, killing a lot of people and killing the economy. And um, not, not all of them are, are probably um, striking that right balance. But uh, Nikki, did you have a point on that? Yeah, and I think that travel insurance generally has got to consider the ways that travel will change. Um, staycationing, holiday homes, caravan parks, people renting motorhomes, you know, there's going to be a considerable uptick in that for maybe 12 or 18 months while people get used to the idea of traveling again. Um, And travel insurance is woeful in covering UK-based holidays in the main. Um, Well, it was. 
it, yes, I, it was. It's getting always better. the optimist. <laughs> always the optimist. But but I, but I think that that people you know people have an assumption. I've booked a holiday. I've paid money for a holiday, and then to discover oh it's not a holiday under the terms of my travel insurance seems a bit strange. So you know I think there's going to be some rewording. You know we've certainly seen it with BI on other policies, and I think we're going to see the same again under travel terms and conditions, um, particularly if people fail to make recoveries on vouchers. Yeah, I, th- I think particularly, I mean, um, we're, we're lucky in the UK, I think particularly with, I mean, I say lucky, the NHS, you know, the healthcare services, everything that we've got, the impact that this has globally on on other regions is, is much more dire because we do have that safety net for everybody. So uh, it's a difficult one. I mean, COVID is definitely not going to be something that uh, goes away anytime soon uh, with any level of permanency. And I, and I do think to your to your point on the state by state, I mean, we're seeing geographies um, all over the place uh, and countries all over the place that will go in and out of lockdown in the way that I think cities will start to do that as well. So this one will run and run. Um, sadly, we won't find out about this one as quickly as we will do Lemonade's uh, valuation. But, I, uh, I was just going to say, say to you on, the, on this one, the other one that I see coming back here to reassure the economy is actually the airlines. And some of the airlines to get back in the air again, no pun intended, have basically said, we will repatriate you if something goes wrong. So actually a combination of industries coming together, you know, an insurer and a cruise line, the airlines themselves saying, we'll get you home, don't worry. will start to give that reassurance back to people to say it's okay. And on, on the upside, you know, I've spoken to colleagues in Asia and Australia, and they're all back in offices, even in France and uh uh, Switzerland and Portugal this week. I've been speaking to people, and it's it's nice to it's been lovely to see everyone's homes, of course, but it's nice to see them back in the office. It gives you a level of comfort to go. God, we might actually return to a level of normality at some point going forward. At some point, which which year that some point is will be yet to be seen. But uh, until then, we'll be coming to see you from our houses. All right, guys, uh, we're going to just take a quick break and uh, cool off. And just before we get back into the show, if you guys have been switching up your morning routine like we have with social distancing and everything, then uh, we might have the show, in fact, two shows for you. Uh, We've started two daily breakfast shows to help you kick off your day on both sides of the Atlantic. So on the Fintech Insider Breakfast Show, hosted by myself, David Breer, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests all calling in remotely, of course, in terms of the way in which we have to right now. It goes on live on LinkedIn every morning at 8.30 BST. So just follow me over on LinkedIn to tune into that. And if you are over in the US uh, and 8.30 BST is probably a little bit too early for you, then don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you guys. So Sam Moore is hosting the US version of the show, which will go out at 10.30 ET every day. So grab a coffee, grab a bagel, grab whatever you want to have for your breakfast and join us every day over on LinkedIn. All right, guys, back on with the show. So we have a story uh, now over on the Financial Times, which is Lloyds of London to open underwriting rooms in September. So Lloyds of London is to reopen the doors to its famous underwriting room in September with much stricter new rules in place for the brokers who are working in the insurance market. So Lloyds is one of the to uh, really deploy face-to-face financial markets with around 7,000 people using the building on an average day, obviously not lately. Um, But since its doors have been closed in March, all of the market's complex insurance contract negotiations have taken place online or over the phone. So the underwriting rooms will operate at just 45% of its normal capacity. Damn, that's still a lot of people, isn't it? 4,500 people in that room. Uh, And there will be now glass screens around the desk where underwriters and brokers discuss insurance policies. Lloyd's is also planning to open what it calls a virtual underwriting room. So this online environment will combine the best features of One Lime Street with the digital technology to create efficient, smart, and collaborative ways of doing business, said uh, an insider at, at Lloyd's. I mean, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, Nigel, the 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 room, the underwriting room, has so much history with it, doesn't it? From from Lloyd's perspective, and and actually for insurance, uh, much more broadly as well. But um, and, and at September seems like a pretty good edge, doesn't it, for for when normality might be uh, able to be resumed as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think for, for all my friends and colleagues that know, I'm a massive fan of some of the history that goes with the London uh, market and Lloyd's itself. I think you look at any of the carriers globally and 
uh, any of the broker facilities. You go, you go into any London insurance company, they've got the broker floor or agent floor, and every one of these will be going on the, going through plans right now to reopen in the safest, most convenient uh, uh, way for us to conduct business um, somewhat the way we used to, but in, in uh, you know, as they've highlighted in the FT, in, in other ways as well. I think this is not much different to that in terms of if you go onto an airplane, they've got different levels of capacity. If you go onto uh, gyms or outdoor gyms, they've got different levels of capacities. It's great to see and it would be great to get back to some of the things that we are good at doing face-to-face. Hmm. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see whether they need to, because, I mean, as you say, just because we can doesn't mean we should in in some instances. And obviously, I mean, this period has very much shown for many companies that you can do things in a very different way. And if they've been able to create, uh, you know, policies and been able to operate as a business remotely, either through digital or telephony in the way that they have, then uh, really it calls into question whether they're continuing the trading floor in this way, the underwriting room, purely just because of sentimental value rather than necessarily needs. It's a very similar argument that's happened with branch from banks for for a decade. But um, Nikki, what do you think? Do you think this is a a good thing to get these things back up and running? And uh, I mean, for me, like I say, it's a a tradition, isn't it? It it is. And, and, you know, it's a shame to watch traditions just be washed away. Um, and I think I think the fact remains that that Lloyd's as an entity will continue in some form in face to face. You know, Lloyd's historically been very slow to adopt technology, as we all know. But I think that there is a value to face to face, particularly when you're placing some of these unique risks. Um, you know, now to automate the underwriting, to be able to have virtual underwriting, a virtual underwriting room, great stuff. But I do think there is a core of risks where I think they will head back, plastic screens and all. Um, you know, it's 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 part of the culture, it's part of the city, but actually there are some risks that need some face-to-face underwriter time. I, I don't know if anybody else would. I think I'd agree. I mean, I think if, if you're talking complex risks, you know, as much as we're doing this remotely now, you know, and, and a lot of my team work remotely two, three days a week, that's fine. Face-to-face interactions are very, very important as humans, right? You know, take work out of it. As humans, you need to have that sort of time together. But I think it will change the type of transactions that they, or the other reasons that they choose to go to Lloyd's for that. Uh, hopefully, to, you know, more towards the sort of complex risk. And if they can reduce their operating overheads to do that and, and, and you know, push some value into the sector, that's great. So, David, like, like, like many of these things, and like many of the industries, we will we have all adapted over the last you know, it was a novelty for the first two or three weeks. We got into the level of boredom between weeks four and week eight. And I, I'm genuinely hoping, and I'm seeing in some of my customers uh, and folks that I work with, where we will all come back stronger. And the things that we did that we didn't need to do face-to-face will, can, can now be done differently. Um, but as Nikki said, as David said, there's some things you just can't replace. And when you've got such deep expertise and some specialist areas that you've got, like like, like Lloyds of London does, that's never going to be washed away. You're going to need to do some of those things uh, in, in a way that I, I feel as, maybe I'm old-fashioned personally, but I feel is the only way you should be able to do it. Yeah, that makes wow. me old-fashioned too. But, um, yeah. I, I, <laughs> there, there I'm is- happy about it. Yeah, me too. There's something, you know, as David said, you know, when you're talking about some of these complex risks, I mean, some of these guys within Lloyd's have got expertise that most of us can only dream of. Um, And when you want to service your client in the best possible way, actually, that's where you're going to head face to face. But I also hope that Lloyd's have learned a little bit um, in terms of cutting, you know, as, as you said, operating costs and welcoming technology into their world. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I think it's a, I think there's always a place for, I mean, the, the human element in digital has, has definitely been something that's been lost. But I, I think the face-to-face nature of it is something that can be distributed. I mean, look at us now, right? We're all in different places, but we're speaking to each other face-to-face. And you can still have the the same sort of empathy and conversation that you can have if you've got good connectivity, really. But um, so I think it is, it is going to be interesting to see what happens and whether this becomes something that actually, whether there's a tradition or a, you know the ritual around it or not, will customer demand start to move to more of a distributed service? Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have the same personal service or, or face-to-face. It just means you don't have to be in the center of London to get it. I was going to add, um, 
coming from this being in the Silicon Valley, there's been a lot of content and articles that the office is dead and no one's ever going to go back in to Silicon Valley again. And the future of the tech workforce is going to be a hundred percent remote. And uh, it's great to hear your guys' perspective because I'm actually more along the lines of thinking where you guys are, that there's still a place for physical in-person interaction. And, you know, the thing I've noticed personally working with my team over the past you know month or two is that when we have the culture of setting up a video conference call, it's often titled with a specific purpose associated with it. But we don't do that at the lunch table uh, when we're going for a walk or crossing paths with someone in a hallway. And we often end up having a lot of creative, unique ideas or just off-topic conversations. And I think at some point, the technology we use is going to evolve where we'll be using video conferencing in a different way where some of that creativity can also emerge. But I think that's an aspect that is at loss. But at the end of the day, I think the thing it reminds me of is I was just reading some old news articles that um, someone was sharing on Twitter of some of the early articles that came along about 15 years ago when the first generation of video conferencing calls were hitting the market. And the headlines were actually saying that the airline industry is going to be gone. No one's going to ever need to travel again. And, you know, it's been 15, 20 years past then, and that hasn't happened. So uh, uh, I think we're sometimes overcorrecting or overreacting to what the future will hold. And the future of video conferencing is positive. I don't think it's going to go away. It's going to be more than ever but that also doesn't mean that physical in-person um, interaction and office spaces are going to disappear either. No, I definitely agree. I think look, the media industry love a good overreaction in a headline, don't they? It's uh, it's what they do best, isn't it? But, I need uh, a hug. Th- I'm being honest. I just want to hug someone. I want to hug a stranger. <laughs> I'm going to tell you all publicly. I'm going to hug you when I see you. And I apologize in advance. That's all I want. I look forward to those days, Nigel. I look forward to those days. I mean, def- definitely one trend that we are seeing, and, and obviously in this in this uh, in between period where we're at right now is is going to be you know events and and v- much more virtual events, and that actually ties to the next story that we've got here as well, which is over on Insurance Business Magazine. So a new era for events cover. So. Beasley is offering virtual events cover, which I mean is obviously going to be such a big. Uh, a big thing given this this sort of weird weird period we're in. So, uh, special insurer uh, Beasley has announced that the launch of contingency policy designed to cover event organisers if transmission failure disrupts or cancels virtual events. Uh, I'm sure that's not down to just like me having bad Wi-Fi in Norfolk, but uh, uh, but uh, you know, new virtual events transmission policy covers organisers who. Uh, success relies on technology platforms delivering uninterrupted transmissions to their audiences. If an event is cancelled due to transmission failure, the policy covers first-party losses, including organizational costs, expenses, gross revenue from advertising and ticket sales. Uh, the coverage is available on a global basis and offers limits up to $10 million. So it's pretty big cover, pretty big events that they're, they're planning on doing this. So uh, spokesperson for uh, Beasley said, even with lockdown easing, we expect this to continue in both business and leisure, and people continue to avoid unnecessary crowds. So, I mean, digital businesses, they're going to become a big thing, right? You, uh, to start with, I think people were trying to figure out what this space could be like, and we saw all of the big events globally be cancelled. But maybe this is a sign that um, some of those bigger events are going to start putting on much, much, much more virtual events. So what do you guys think on this one? Is it, Again, this is this is the industry responding to a problem that the world has and providing proper cover. Yeah, I think I, th- I think it is responding to a problem the world didn't know it was going to have. Um, yeah. Now, an element of this cover has always been available by extension, but I think by packaging it as a, a specifically for virtual. And, you know, um, if you look at all sorts of events are going to be held online, Now, you know, whether that's a drive-in movie put on by the, the Goodwood because Revival and Festival of Speed have been cancelled, whether it's a, you know, a full-on Bieber that's going to be run remotely. You know, there are there's a whole range. Um, and I think that there is a big risk to people putting on those types of events. So I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of for it. Mm. It's going to be interesting to understand how they prove those things to a certain degree, isn't it? And the stipulations around all the policies and things, because obviously, you know, 
duplex distribution of, of things just because you broadcast it doesn't necessarily mean somebody receives it in the way so it's it's going to be really interesting to see how the the cover gets uh, enacted in here but david what do you think on this one i, I think it's, it's an interesting i think it's great the industry is responding to, to what they think is the uh, is, is a risk i think it, it's a tricky one as to whether or not the industry will perceive that as a risk you know cyber was hard to get moving people perceive it more as a risk now but the potential risk of that is way way greater than a, probably a transmission failure I, I think in the end it may end up coming that the, the the providers of the transmission service will have that cover as a as a provider rather than buying it individually potentially uh but yeah we'll, we'll wait and see hmm um, what, what what do you think, Sahas? Because I, I feel like this is, I mean, it's a trend that's going to get bigger and bigger in terms of more and more events being put on in this space. So, I mean, is the, ultimately, again, is this just the industry covering the covering a gap? Yeah, you know, I think it's quite interesting. I actually did a quick search just to kind of, out of curiosity, look up several of the SLAs for the popular video conferencing services. And I actually couldn't find the one for Zoom, but I found that their competitors like Microsoft Teams and uh, even Google Meet do disclose and uh, make their SLAs available on their website. And what's interesting to me about the subject matter is not that it's it's entirely possible and keep to offer these types of policies, but it's going to be interesting to see what the coverage level will be and to the extent of what aspects of failure they're going to cover. It's a lot of points of failure from your laptop to your utility provider to you know, your headset to your internet ISP. Uh, and it's not just a video conferencing service that's at um, uh, risk here. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, even every tech startup, you buy an errors and missions policy in cyber. So there's already an aspect, as David said, that insurance companies are already taking this into account. So I think it makes a lot of sense. It's just going to be interesting to see how it develops and matures as the next you know, year or two come, come along. Mm. Yeah, I guess with the, you know, the cyber side of things, then it's, it's actually more sort of malicious intent than just bandwidth sucks sometimes or technology just freaks out sometimes but Nigel I, I guess we need to talk about whether we need to get an insurance policy for remote recording of InsureTech Insider <laughs> at this stage I guess right I think we have the flexibility and stuff to do this but you you think about someone like um uh web summit that's going on or just just going on as we speak where you've got thousands of people turning up for events what is it that when those things have gone from physical to digital what do they do when cities municipalities have invested millions of pounds to make sure those events to come to their cities and they've now come online. The, uh, and I, I love what the BC guys have done here in terms of they've seen a product market fit, been able to message it accordingly. But this is, you know, if, you, if you're a, an IT guy or a CIO or CTO, you want to be managing resilience and risk across platforms and platforms for years because you'll sit there with every vendor offering you five nines and you sit there and go, well, I'm, a, I'm an algo trader and I want to make sure I've got more than five nines or whatever it might be. But you're going to have everything in place from, you know, three different connections from three different providers coming into your building in three different ways to make sure you've got that sort of good, you know, good uh, business continuity and resilience. So um, I think this sort of stuff has existed for a long time. I think the fact that it's been repackaged in this way is very, very smart. Uh, and I think you'll see loads more of that. I mean, you could almost say... Um, the travel insurance we talked about earlier is identical because, to be honest, the industry's already paid out two hundred and seventy-five million in the UK on travel insurance out of the one out of the one point two billion that's been paid out. So it was never not excluded. It's just been remessaged to say or reaffirmed to customers to go and don't worry if it's COVID related. Here's the clarity that you need around confidence. I mean, I mean, this is modern day Pluvius. Let's be honest. You know, I used to be able to cover my marquee and if it rained hay and nobody turned up, I was covered. And this is this is a very similar type of thing. It's not rain. But, you know, you can imagine organizations who perhaps want to run a conference where there are side meeting rooms that people can book. And if you think about that being extended digitally. Yeah, I think Beasley's are onto something. One last one last add to it then. So as we talked about COVID quite a few times. If you think global pandemic is what, number seven on the World Economic Forum, global risks, number two, I believe, is, is cyber. So what happens in a cyber pandemic where someone's taken out the US, or the ISPs for Silicon Valley, all of the Atlantic cables, London, Europe, and we can no longer connect or transact? At what point does we have a cyber uh, restart policy, the same way we have flood re or whatever else that's been talked about right now? So that could be a, a pandemic perspective rather than just a pure policy perspective. 
It's bound to happen, right? Uh, at some point, there's going to be an event, a cyber event that significant, isn't there? But uh, and, and I think that in, insurers need to start looking at risk in a different way. You know, they need, to, you know, COVID is evidence that, you know, actually business interruption for premises, not really much good when you've got a pandemic on. Um, and, I, and I think that there were, are, and I'm sure Nigel and I both know that there are a number of insurers who are busily wondering what the next situation could be and how they can best prepare for it. I mean, arguably, I mean, if, if you had to, if you were a business right now and you had the opportunity to either shut down your physical presence or shut down your online presence, shutting down your physical presence is probably going to be more significantly impacting to your business operations, to your consumers and your your employees, which is, it shows how much far the industry's come, isn't it? But I'm afraid I'm going to have to shut down the, this, this story though, because we've got the most exciting thing I think I've ever had the opportunity to talk about that we're going to have to move on to next. So, uh, and I want to make sure we've got a little bit of time to go through it so and there are a few stories that we we can't uh go through in detail today one of them that uh, i'm going to pick up is uh so this is on itij so this is 7-eleven to sell insurance in japan which in itself is a really interesting thing that 7-eleven for anybody you know who knows the the 7-eleven brand but the uh the 7-eleven insurance that it's going to be being uh sold particularly is by a copier machine, which just blows my mind. So um, we're in a situation where, so 7-Eleven is to begin selling life insurance policies uh, from MSNAD Insurance Group uh, to its consumers from 20,000 of its Japanese outlets. So 7-Eleven customers will be able to apply for insurance policy through a multifunction copier machine, having completed most of the application beforehand on their smartphone or computer. Um, so 7-Eleven says it hopes to achieve around 60,000 thousand new life insurance sales through this new initiative i mean it's interesting isn't it that's that's not that's not very high on the policies their expectations so maybe they're just trying this to see what happens uh to see the impact but i mean is buying life insurance from a photocopier a good idea of anybody better um, than not I, buying life insurance maybe i you know it's a fair point nikki uh, look i mean your point about the volume is interesting it's three policies per um per outlet I think the market or the region is used to buying, used to doing things via self-service generally. So you can buy lots of things via self-service. We've seen similar things for travel insurance. You can buy travel insurance with kiosks at at airports, but they're usually liability policies, not life policies. I think the key thing here is typically life insurance is sold, not bought, whereas other policies are bought, not necessarily sold. So the thing you've taken away here with the removal of the agent is we really and truly have gone from a, hey, we don't want our agents to interact because of COVID or whatever it might be, but we still want the opportunity for you to buy it if you, if you so need to do it. And that's the bit I'm intrigued by. I, lo- I saw it and I, I loved it. I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, I originally read it and I was like, wait, is this some weird cross sell? It's like, you know, do some fo- do some black and white photocopies, upsell to life insurance. Seemed like an odd one. But uh, Nigel, what's up next? Uh, next up, uh, continuing the theme of cycling. So we've got obviously Bigmo, we talk about lemonade and cycling. Um, Lacquer expanding their uh, portfolio. Friend of the show, Tapey's been on a few times. Um, they've bought a recovery product. And as someone who's been on the bike, I'm like, oh, what on earth is recovery? So it's basically a, a, a policy backed by the existing insurer, Zurich, and it allows you to go wherever the cyclist does. So what they mean by that is they will give you uh, coverage. Should you have an accident, you can't be on the bike. It's got a whole host of things in there, whether it's uh, dental, mental health support, access to virtual GPs for faster assessments, all the things you do. If you're a cycling nerd like David and I, the one thing you, you, you want to be is on the bike. And when you can't get on the bike, the one thing you want to do is get back on the bike as quickly as possible. Uh, and we are renowned, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, for not stretching, not recovering properly, not doing the things you're supposed to do. And this policy is, is in essence something for that. So they've got the policy for your bike already. Now this is just for you. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting um, addition to, to, to the portfolio to see how they move beyond their existing and growing portfolio of bikes. So a super interesting time. Um, Obviously with Lemonade now launching in the Netherlands for bike insurance is super exciting. This is an update from Lacquer to their portfolio. David, I guess given this is your field, you've probably got a, a stronger view than anyone on this one. 
Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly an interesting, uh, interesting move, interesting launch, I think. I mean, like personal covers, medical costs and stuff aren't new within the bike sector. We include it as standard in, you know, plus some race policies. Pedal, sure, I think it is used, um, certain services are sort of standalone. But I think the way in which they've done it, I think it's nice to bolt on the GP cover, the virtual GP cover. There's a lot of different sort of medical uh, uh, covers are, are going that way. And I think expanding it to the wider market over and above Bikes is a smart move as well. You know, Strava research showed that over 60% of cyclists enjoy another sport. It's a natural way to go and, and watch this space for a few of the things to come from, from Bigmo as well. Fantastic. And I think like most insurance, especially this type, I hope never to use it. Indeed. I guess one other quick question before we, 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 we finish up is, um, obviously, David, with Bigmo, you've got access to multiple countries here. And as a passionate cyclist who's, who's cycled in the UK and France and elsewhere, Passionate cyclists or passionate cyclists world over. Is that true? Are we the same in every market? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, we, like I said, um, we, we operate in, um, as well as the UK, Germany, Austria, uh, and Ireland. And, and I think the core reason why people cycle is the same. It's for the passion. It's for the, the suffering to explore the trails. It's to be uh, just to get out into the, the great outdoors. So I think that is absolutely, I think that does stay the same. Uh, you know, places like Netherlands, there's a much bigger focus on, on, on commuting or you know riding by um, um, uh, bike in the city um, the insurance markets are very different in different places so people aren't aware there is a specific insurance of bikes um, in, in a lot of different areas so that's going to be part of the education piece it'll be, it'll be interesting for these uh, new entrants to the market to see if there's actually the you know the demand there but like with the, the, the likes of lemonade going into the sector there's no doubt that they're going to make a bit of a splash and really prove whether the, the market is there fantastic and that's probably a good point to wrap up, I think, at that stage. So uh, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much for everybody joining us. And thank you so much for our guests for, for jumping in. Uh, Sahas, where can people learn a little bit more about your product and uh, everything that you're up to over in the US? Yeah, I think the easiest way is just head over to smartcar.com. Fantastic. David? Yeah, uh, just you can find me on LinkedIn, David George Bigmo. Fantastic. Nikki? Uh, LinkedIn, Nikki Daniels at easyinsurancesolutions.co.uk. Very good. And Mr. Walsh, where can people find out more? Fighting the good cause for insurers on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. Very good. And as for me, uh, as always, you can find me over on LinkedIn. Thank you to all of our guests. And as always, thank you for you guys for listening. If you want to find out more about the show, if you head over to Twitter at Insects Insider. Uh, and if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review over on iTunes and generally just get involved if you want to over on podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening, guys. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.